The following podcast is a production of Hardly Awesome Studios in association with the network. Find us at BICBP-radio.com. Cardboard Cave. It's been a while. It's been a long while. Uh, I'm glad you're here. If any of you stuck around, I do appreciate that. Um, I'm just going to re- get right into it. I'm here alone in the cave, uh, which I'm thinking is going to become more the norm. Um, you know, I'll have someone on when it works out, but this is a good time for me to record, and it's been so long, and there are some reasons for that. Um, I- I'm just going to get into it right quick. I have a game I really want to talk about today. Also want to go over some purchases I've made since last recorded and since I recorded last. Also, uh, the game kind of leads into a topic I want to talk about related to Kickstarters. Uh, so I'm going to keep it moving. Basically, um, why has it been three months? Um, well, I've just kind of lost motivation the last uh, month or so. I'm not going to dwell on this for long, but, um, the long and the short of it is my mom passed away. It's been, it's been about a month now when I'm recording. Um, and just even like for the month before that, things were kind of going downhill and changing a lot. So it was just hard to be motivated to, to do this. Although in a way it's a good therapy for me, so I should have done it sooner. But, um, you know, uh, I don't want to bring up this is a board game podcast. I've already spent at least one episode being way too heavy and way too serious. Um, but if you're here, you know this is a different kind of podcast too. Um, I know some of you have gone through this, you know, the loss of a, a loved one, you know, a, a mom, a parent. Um, I'm not going to go into all the details except, you know, I'm I'm 37. I feel like I'm way too young to have lost my mom. Um, you know, she had a long, hard battle, but Amazingly, somehow, it seemed incredibly fast and unexpected even, as weird as that sounds. Um, I think I'll say, and I think some of you can connect with this, and again, I I don't mean to bring up sad feelings for you, but for me, it's helpful to talk about it every now and then. I think maybe it is for others, too. Uh, The first three weeks or so after it happened... For me, it felt like, and some of you might can relate to this, or this might just be me. This is the best way. There's no good way to explain how it feels. You know, I've lost aunts and uncles. Um, well, just uncles. I've lost a lot of uncles, most of my uncles. Um, in fact, uh, all of my grandparents are passed away. Um, I was really close to one of them. But nothing really touches this. This is like a different league. Uh, my mom and I were incredibly close. Uh, she was sort of the center, the epicenter of our family in so many ways. Um, and even though, I've, even though I've been, you know, living on my own and now living with my own family for quite some time, it, it, that never changes. But the best way I could, I could explain it to someone uh, who's, 
maybe been through this or hasn't been through this, the only way I could explain it is for the first three weeks after it happened, it felt like I was not even living in the same world anymore. There was the mom where my, my mom, there was the world where my mom was alive. And then now I was living in this other world without her in it. And I don't mean that just to sound like, I don't know, morbid or to exaggerate. That's just how it felt to me. Like there was a world that I knew with mom in it. And then now I'm living in this other world and she's not in it. It it didn't just feel like I lost someone important to me. It felt like I'm actually not even living in the same world anymore. That lasted for roughly three, three and a half weeks. And now at this point, you know, I'm, it's four weeks. Actually, we're just, we're entering the fifth week since she's passed. And now to me, I feel like I'm living in the same world, like the, the real world. I'm, I'm back in the real world where I'm supposed to be. So I guess that's progress. I'm living in the, the, the true world now, the world um, where my mom lived and now has passed. But it just feels like every single thing in this world is not as good as it was. Like every single thing, it just doesn't bring quite as much joy. I mean, little things, you know, going outside on a beautiful day still brings joy. That's just a wonderful gift. But it doesn't bring quite as much joy as it did before. And then there's some things um, that used to bring a lot of joy that were very connected, you know, to my mom that now don't bring any joy at all or even bring sadness. So some things are only diminished a little bit in my life, but some things were completely destroyed. Um, And it's very surprising (laughs) to realize what things were destroyed or really diminished. Um, but yeah, that's, that's all I'm going to say about that. Um, so my heart now truly does go out to those of you who also lost your moms way too soon, um, or anyone in your life way too soon. It's always too soon. Um, sometimes it just feels more soon than others. But, um, one thing my mom wouldn't want me doing is just moping around all the time. And I enjoy board games and I enjoy talking to you people, or at least talking to this microphone and and hoping that you're getting something out of this. So I'll just say that's one of the reasons it's been three months since I recorded, but I can't blame it all on that, you know, but here I am. And what I want to (laughs) do, you know, maybe it's somewhat related to what's been going on, but I've not played a ton of games in the last three months, but it has been three months. So there are some games to talk about. But when I was started looking, like I wanted to talk about some of the games I purchased, even if I haven't played them since I last recorded, And I realized I've kind of went on a little bit of a buying spree in the last three months when it comes to board games. Um, For good reason, I've slowed way down on purchasing board games compared to what I used to do. Uh, It's time to just get some of them played, frankly. But in the last three months, for various reasons, um, in some cases, I just found really good deals on games I already wanted. Other times, I just get this, you know... I just thought in my mind, oh, it would be really cool to have that game, and I can't get that thought out of my mind. Um, and some of it's probably trying to bring a little bit of joy from buying things. I mean, let's be honest. Um, but real quick, um, sort of the headliner game that I've bought recently is Ticket to Ride Europe, the 15th anniversary edition. And I'm not going to talk about this game because pretty much everybody knows what Ticket to Ride is. This was the second Ticket to Ride that came out, you know, back in the day, Ticket to Ride Europe, which I've owned for, you know, probably 15 years, roughly, um, you know, maybe 14 years or something, because this is the 15th anniversary of the game, and it is in the same vein as the 10th anniversary edition of Ticket to Ride, which if you have that game, it's now worth quite a pretty penny, 
Uh, when I saw what it was selling for on eBay, you know, it costs like, I think it retailed for 90 bucks when it came out and it's selling for three, four hundred dollars on eBay now. I'm like, oh my goodness. But it's such a, it's a classic, like the definition of a classic and it's such a beautiful game. I don't think I'm going to sell it. But yeah, for that price, it's tempting, I'll be honest. But Ticket to Ride Europe is now out and it's the same. I think it retails for $90. I think that's right. Which is, yeah, that's a lot for a board game. More than the going price for like a plenty of games that cost more than that now. I mean, Gloomhaven's what, 120, 130 bucks? Um, just about any miniatures game is going to be over 100 bucks. But still, 80 bucks, you know, for, for a ticket to ride, that's a lot of money. But I wanted to highlight it here because, my goodness, it's such a pretty game. Like, I, I don't know what I expected because the 10th anniversary of the original Ticket to Ride was also beautiful. But I was still just thoroughly tickled, we'll put it that way, when I opened the box. Uh, my favorite, I won't go through all of them, but my favorite is the the car carrier. It's got little, I don't know, they look like 1950s cars on the actual train car, uh, like automobiles, you know. Um the pieces are lovely. They come in tins, just like the 10th anniversary ticket ride edition. The cards are lovely, and it includes the cards from the uh, Europa 1912 expansion. So you got everything you need right there in the box. And the board, the board might be the star of the show. I thought it was going to be the train cars, but the board is not only very large, but it's just beautiful. I actually have to say, I think as a whole package, I think it's just a little bit more beautiful than the ticket ride 10th anniversary. I think the Ticket to Ride Europe 15th anniversary is actually even prettier, even nicer. And uh, it's one of those games that I feel like it's worth every penny of $80 asking price. If you're like me and you count Ticket to Ride as a classic game, some people, you know, feel like, yeah, it was a classic, but they're past it now. I still think it's a fun time and I'm so glad to have it. So I recommend if you love Ticket to Ride to get it before it goes out of print because apparently... It's going to go up quite a bit once it does. A few other games I picked up. Uh, Coldwater Crown. Coldwater Crown is just some gig. I've talked about this before. You know, games that are like the stereotypical hot machines are just not my thing. But I got super hyped over this game, which I think has been out at least a couple years. But it's called Coldwater Crown. Um, it's a one to four player game, 40 to 90 minutes. And one of the reasons I picked this up is because it reminds me of like old fishing games on like the NES. Uh, or even Jaws, <laughs> which was not a great game. But if you played that game on the NES, the board just, I don't know. It just reminds me of that, but in a good way. And uh, I just, I like the way it looks. Weirdly enough, I like the fishing thing, even though I could care less about fishing in real life. Like, I really just don't enjoy it. Um, but the fishing thing, for some reason in a board game, that's the kind of thing I go for. I know I'm weird. Um, but also, to the point that a lot of people just play it as a solo game. Um, but apparently it scales well up to four as well, so... Well, actually, I'm thinking this one was best with one to three, I think people said. But but it's great as a solo game. And so I, I just don't really play solo games much. But I'm thinking this might become one of my solo games. Pillars of the Earth is one of those classic worker placement games that I feel like everybody should just have. That's kind of the common mentality. But I've never had it. And it went out of print for years. It's back in print now. I picked it up. Can't comment on it, except it does remind me of Stone Age, just in the... The number of components, the type of components, the beautiful board. I think Michael Menzel did the art for it, as well as Stone Age, if I'm not mistaken. Pretty sure. Um, yeah. Uh, so looking forward to that. I, I haven't played either of those games, so I can't comment beyond that. Um, a box of Golf. 
this is where I am in life right now. So I've been playing Mario Golf on the Switch. Um, me and my friends have been having a blast with it. I know some people are a little disappointed in it, which I get. It's a little lean on content, but this isn't a video game podcast. Me and my friends have been having a blast with it. We've always loved like the arcadey golf style games. And it's got me in a golf mood, even though, again, I don't know anything about the PGA Tour or what's even going on in golf right now. Um, I've only played a handful of times in my life, although it's fun if you're with friends who don't care. Um, But I started looking for golf board games, and I don't think there really are that many. Not that I would consider a hobby game or there's a lot of like simulations, but they're just very, very basic looking as far as they're basically a pad of paper and maybe some cards. Uh, and they're like 20 to 30 years old usually. Don't get me wrong, I actually would be interested in trying one of those, but I wanted a golf board game. The closest I could find, really realistically, is a game called Box of Golf. It's out of print, but you can still find it for a reasonable price. It's a really deluxe board game that this company made, and I think it's the only thing they ever made. And it's wooden. The box is wooden. It has nine holes that are double side or nine boards that are double sided, so you have 18 holes of golf, and those boards are wooden. And they actually slide on the top of the box, and you play right there on the box. Um, I've read through the rules, and basically it's it's kind of like a Yahtzee on steroids, but it's got more going on than that. It's a Yahtzee on steroids in the same sense that, I don't know, King of Tokyo is Yahtzee on steroids. They're not even similar, but I'm saying it's it's got more going on than what you would think. Um, and actually, some of the mechanics from the rules, it's got some. it's definitely got some modern game design to it. Like, it's got some... I would even say borderline Euro game mentality to it. But at the end of the day, it's a dice rolling game. But it looks beautiful. Um, There's different versions of it. Uh, If you look into it, I think their versions are basically the same. Except, try not to get the most basic one. Um, It's like the most simple one. It just has golf tees as the characters. The other versions have actual uh, figures. Like little pewter or plastic figures that are painted um, of golfers. The the most basic version just has golf tees. If you look for it, don't get that version. Because I, from what I understand, the board is even smaller on that version. But either of the other versions are basically the same. I can't even tell the difference. And it's basically whatever you can find. Probably reasonable because it's not available new anymore. But uh, anyways, if, if you're weird like me and that sounds appealing, that's Box of Golf. It's two to four players. I wish it had an official solo version. I feel like it should or could. Um, but anyways. Uh, I think the last two I'll talk about... Again, haven't played either of these. Uh, Board Game Geek had a sale going on. It was, it must have been Memorial Day. Yeah, it was. Finishing Time by Freedom and Freeze is a game I've had my eye on. And it's only available in the Board Game Geek store for now at least. And I don't know why. It just looks cool to me. I love the theme of it. It's, uh, the theme is basically who can be the most relaxed. But you take on the role of workers and you're working a work week. And the longer your work week, the more stressed you get. To get unstressed, you know, you might go to the amusement park. You might get a partner uh, and go biking. You know, you do these different things. If you really can't find the time to do anything else, you just go to the bar (laughs) to to get a little bit of relaxation. Um, You can always just go home and watch TV for like kind of the minimum amount of relaxation. Like it's just the most basic form, you know, of relaxation. Um it's got like uh, you're fighting for equal pay for women because your women workers, your women meeples actually make less per hour at the start of the game. And, and one of the goals is to fix that, basically. it's it's uh, I think Freedom of Freeze does that a little bit, sort of 
sort of comedy, but also trying to make you think a little bit like, hey, this isn't right. You know, that kind of thing. Uh, if you get longer vacation hours and shorter work weeks for your employees, you get more points. You know, I don't know. I just love the theme of that. And the whole thing was just to have a better work-life balance, which almost literally everyone can relate to that. I know I can. But also at the same time, <laughs> so here, here's, this explains me, probably if nothing else does as a gamer. I went to get finishing time in the Board Game Geek sale. I left with finishing time and tapestry. You know, the funny thing there is tapestry is a super uh, well-known, popular game from Stonemaier Games, Jamie Stegmeier. I really had no interest in it. I was going for Finishing Time, a game almost no one's even heard of. Uh, the thing is, they had such a good sale on Tapestry. I'm like, my goodness. I don't know if I can pass this up at this price. Like, I think I'll give it a shot. And I'm curious. I'll, I'll try to cover Tapestry on the show, even though probably nobody cares now. It's been out so long. But this has been a really polarizing game. Some people just love everything Stolmeyer Games does. And other people, I think, almost like to hate on Stolmeyer Games because they're so almost worshipped like people like like to hate on them and i thought the truth probably lies somewhere in between but i'm going to play the game i'm going to find out i'll see where i come out obviously i hope i come out enjoying it or i just wasted my money um but anyways whew, that was a lot um i'm just going to really go through these quick some games that i played it has been three months so unfortunately just life is life i've not played near as many games in those three months as i feel like i should have but it has been three months so we have played some games you know, the last episode we recorded was Underwater Cities. Um, so since Underwater Cities, since three months ago, we have played um, Abyss. Abyss is a game that we played three times in the last three months. It's a game that's new to me, but it's been out for a long time. I really feel like Abyss might become a future episode. For now, I'll just say, to me, Abyss is it's, it's pretty simple game. But to me, it feels a little bit different than anything else I've played. And I really appreciate it for that. Um, actually, as simple as it is, and although my wife has played much more complex games, something about it kind of threw her off a little bit. Like, she was just, felt like she didn't do very well, and it, it kind of threw her off. She's willing to play more, but that, that, I really enjoyed it, but that kind of threw me off a little bit, that it, it didn't click with her for some reason. And it might just be one of those games that takes a while to click with some people, or it might not click with some people. So, once I played that more, uh, I think we'll give that a review. Fields of Arl is a heavy Uwe Rosenberg game, you know, in his farming series, you know, Agricola and, and, um, or at Labora and Caverna and, uh, Hollertau, I think is his newest one or Holler two. I'm actually not sure how to say it, <laughs> but Fields of Arl kind of stands out because it's a big, you know, heavy Euro game that only out of the box plays one or two players. You know, it's a solo or two-player game. That is unusual for a game like that. And that's why it appealed to me. I've played it twice solo. And unfortunately, I've waited too long. Now I'll probably have to go through the rules again. But I know my thoughts at the time were, I could see this becoming, if me and my wife end up not playing this, and I just end up, it just kind of ends up becoming my solo game of choice. I'm actually okay with that. Uh, because I don't really have a solo game of choice. And I really enjoyed it. Um, it's quite heavy. But like most of his games, or like most games, period, really, once you get the mechanics down, it's actually quite smooth. Um, it works well. It's just there's a lot going on. I don't know how many spots. It's a worker placement game, and there's like, I don't even know how many spots you can go to, but a lot. 
But uh, yeah, I, I think it's a winner for sure. And it played super smooth as a solo game. And I think it played in about an hour as a solo game, which for such a meaty game is very reasonable. Um, yeah, so I'm looking forward to playing that more. And I'm going to shout out Gobby. Gobby from the Board Game Snobs. I almost hate to recommend their podcast because you literally have no reason to listen to this one if you listen to that one. Because uh, they're just so much more entertaining. Um, they remind me, <laughs> which they probably take this as a, a slander against them. But, you know, me and my friend Johnny do the Retro Blist video game podcast. And we have a lot of fun on there. Um, unfortunately, me and Johnny don't get to play enough board games together for me to have him on all the time to do this podcast. Or this podcast would honestly be a lot better. But but anyways, that's kind of how Board Game Snobs is. They play board games frequently together. Uh, they play a lot of board games together. And they're also just very funny and entertaining. So, Board Game Snobs, check them out. And Gobby actually kind of encouraged me to play Fields of Arl. I've owned this game for a couple years. And... Um, and I'm like, you know what? I'm going to do it. So I learned it and played it. And thanks, Gobby. Um, I do think it'll be my solo game of choice for a while. Oh, wow. Okay. Uh, the last game I think we really played since last recording. So Abyss, Fields of Arl. Um, I guess the only other one, except, well, the game I'm about to talk about. But the other one is Lords of Waterdeep. And this is another funny one. I've played it four times in the last probably month and a half. And I've owned this game for literally years. I'm not kidding. I've owned this game for years. And didn't play it the first time until just probably a month and a half ago. It's shameful. It's disgraceful. All I'll say is this game sat on the shelf for years because I kind of bought it as a way to bridge the gap for some friends I know that kind of like Dungeons and Dragons and RPGs and stuff. But I haven't played as many board games. And I thought this would be a way to kind of get them to play board games. But just never ended up pulling it out with them. And had the wrong idea. In fact, Lords of Waterdeep is a super, super smooth, dare I say elegant, worker placement game. The kind they barely make anymore, to be honest with you. It's so smooth. It's probably along the same weight as Stone Age. And it's it's just as smooth as Stone Age. That's what surprised me. Now, it's more about card play than Stone Age is. There's no die rolling. You know, Stone Age is a lot of resource gathering and luck mitigation and worker placement set collection. Lords of Waterdeep is pretty much straight worker placement and collecting resources to get things. Um, but there's a good dose of theme in there. You know, you're going on quests. That's the main way you get points. In reality, you're just turning in colors of cubes. But you're going on quest. But it's just a smooth, fun game. And I don't care how behind I am in realizing this, because this game is super popular years ago. But it's a fun game. In fact, it's so fun that I bought some upgrades for it, and my version is now blinged out. Uh, there are no longer cubes you send on quests. You now send fighters and rogues, and there are these little tiny meeples, like with a sword and shield and, and things like that. But I think <sighs> I think I want to dive into that deeper on a future episode, so I'm not going to say anything more now. So, I'm going to take a quick break, and then we'll get into our feature game. Okay, so the game I really wanted to talk about today 
is the most recent game I've acquired and also the most recent game I've played. And that is Everdale, a game by James A. Wilson. And like pretty much everything else I talk about, Everdale is not even remotely a new game. It was a very hot game, I would say, like 2019. I th the box says 2018. I don't know if it was really available in 2018 or if it was like came out maybe like Essen in 2018 or, or Gen Con and then was it really available to 2019. I'm honestly not sure. But it was a Kickstarter game, so it might have actually come out in 2018. Uh, it was very much a Kickstarter game, and we're going to get to that. But I'm not going to spend a lot of time with the rules and stuff. I'm going to get right to the chase. The reason I wanted to talk about Everdale is because if you're a board gamer, you know, if you're the, the a real gamer, you know, hashtag, trademark, whatever, you probably have heard plenty about Everdale. But if you're like me, all right, so here, here's, here's how I was. Like, I've heard tons about Everdale. Everybody raves about how charming and beautiful it is. And I saw screenshots. Yes, it's gorgeous. And because it's so beautiful and was rated so highly, I thought, you know, Everdale's probably a game I will eventually get. That always had that in the back of my mind. I'll eventually get Everdale. But I kind of always thought it's one of those games that's beautiful, but the gameplay's probably not going to be all that exciting. And that that's not fair, but... I figured it's one of those games that was partly rated highly just because it's so beautiful, if that makes sense. Don't get me wrong. If a game is a dog and it's beautiful, most people are going to call it out. But I'm saying I thought, I didn't know if the gameplay would be as exciting as the visuals. We'll put it that way. And I, and I didn't have anything to go on except whenever I heard anybody talk about the game, they just went on about how beautiful and cute it was. But I never really heard anybody say, well, here's why you should play the game. Now, don't get me wrong. The art, the visuals is a big part of the game for me. I'm not one of these people that claims, oh, I don't care how a game looks. That's baloney anyways. You do care a little bit. Or every game would be on construction paper. There's probably some people out there that would play a game made with construction paper and pencils and be just happy. But most of us care a little bit. Like, I don't need minis and a bunch of plastic and, and stuff like that. But I appreciate great art. I appreciate solid wooden components. I appreciate things that are sturdy. Things like that, you know. Um, anyway, so I want to talk about this game. Spoiler alert. I believe it has more to offer than I gave it credit for. It's not just beauty. <laughs> beauty is more than skin deep in this case. Um, the way this game is played is basically a, a tableau building card game or an engine building card game, or to put it in layman's terms, you're just playing cards and you have sort of an imaginary quote-unquote city in front of you, which is just, if you can imagine three rows of five cards each, is how much room you have to build your city. Um, the cards you play either represent critters in your city or constructions in your city. That's the only two types of cards you actually play in front of you. Um, because the theme is Everdale is this beautiful woodland realm, and the citizens of Everdale decided it's time to expand and make new cities within Everdale. And so your tableau, your a your area of the table is your city. Uh, 15 cards is the max you can play in front of you, unless you have something that says otherwise, but the, basically that's all you can play. By the end of the game, you only have room for 15 cards. Of course, there's things that'll destroy cards and replace them, so you can get around that in some ways. 
And if you played Engine Builder before, you know cards you play might affect other cards and might build off other cards. You know, my favorite game of that style recently is Underwater Cities. And Underwater Cities is a heavier game. But there's some also some big similarities. Because this game, at its core, is worker placement and card play engine building. Which is exactly what Underwater Cities is. So, the main board simply has worker placement spots on it. And to keep it simple, most of them let you gather things. For example, this spot might only have room to hold one worker. Which, by the way, your workers are these cute wooden creatures. Or, or uh, not, yeah, creatures. Uh, hedgehogs. Uh, squirrels. Mice. Things like that. Um, turtles. And... So if you put your turtle on this space, you might collect three wood. And again, all the pieces in this game are nice. So the wood is actual like wooden logs. And by the way, I bought this game from Barnes & Noble. This is the retail edition. This is not the fancy Kickstarter edition. And that is going to be my topic. That's going to lead into my topic after this. Uh, a quick talk about exclusive Kickstarters, Kickstarter stuff. But this is just the retail edition of the game. Nothing extra. So, you might have a space to collect three wood, and then there's a space beside it where you collect, say, two wood and a card. Well, most people would probably rather have the three wood, um, but you'll take the two wood and a card if the three wood's taken up. Or one space might let you collect berries, and there's only room for one person to go to the space that gives you a berry and a card, but unlimited people can go to the space that just gives you a berry. And so your basic spaces, there's only four basic worker placement spaces. You can collect wood, resin, which I thought was a kind of unique thing to collect. Pebbles, which are these adorable, and I'll use that word probably more than once. Adorable, um, I don't know if they're plastic. They feel, they kind of feel like pebbles. I guess they are just plastic though. Uh, pebbles, the berries are adorable and they're almost smushy like berries. They're really cool. They're rubbery. Um... And that's what you're collecting, is those four things. But there's also four randomized worker placement spots that are actually cards that you shuffle and you put four out every game or two in a three... Or three in a two-player game, I should say. And these are new spots you can go to that tend to be more powerful, but they're random. So like in one game, you might not have any extra way to get stones or pebbles, so pebbles might be really hard to come by. But you might have it so that there's two new spots to get pebbles. You know, those randomized spots, which I really love that. These cards that go out that are actually randomized worker placement spots. So you might have in this game a lot of ways to get pebbles, so pebbles aren't so hard to come by. And in another game, that might be really hard to come by. And these spots do things like, for example, in one, you can trade in cards. And you tend to collect quite a few cards in this game. And you have a strict eight-hand limit, eight-card hand limit. So there'll be times you're honestly just wanting to get rid of cards so you can get new cards. You can't just discard whenever you want to in this game. That might sound basic, but it ends up being a big part of the game. A strict eight-hand limit. You can't just discard when you want to. It has to be something that says you get to discard. So like there's always a space on the board that says um, you can discard as many cards as you want to, and for every two you get any resource you want. But in this game, you know, one of the random spaces we get might say you get a resource for every single card you turn in and you get to draw a card or something like that. So anyways, you got basic 
worker placement spots and then some that are shuffled in different every game that add more spice. In addition to those spaces that just flat out give you resources or let you trade in cards for resources, there's also, they're called events. And basically it's just, they represent like, one is a, a festival, one is a monument. For example, to collect the monument, the city monument event, you actually have to put a worker there and you just get three points. But to do that, you simply have to have three cards in your city that have that symbol, the the monument symbol, where it's, it represents law or rule or whatever, to get the the uh, um, the harvest. I guess it represents like a harvest festival. To collect that one, you have to have four cards in your city with the green production symbol, that kind of thing. And then there's also special events that you can uh, collect, and they're very specific. Like you have to have... One of my favorites I've seen is, um, it's called, uh, flying medical care or something like that. And you have to collect the card carrier pigeon and doctor. Specifically, if you have those two cards in your city played, then you can, on a future turn, use a worker to claim that flying doctor or whatever it's called card. Um, basically I think you can ignore those completely and still probably do okay, but also, it can give you a little direction, like, hmm, I already have the pigeon, now the doctor just came out. That's going to be my goal, is to get that card before anybody else does. Honestly, though, those special events where you have to have two specific cards, you might go a whole game and not even see both cards. Other people might hoard them in their hands. Or like in a two-player game, you won't, you very, very likely won't go through the whole deck. Um, I played this game twice as a four-player game, once as a two-player game, so far. And in the four-player game, we went through the deck, but just barely. But we did go through the deck both times. In a two-player game, we had quite a few cards left over, which makes sense. I mean, you're not going to go through it in a two-player game. Um, so yeah, you got you got different ways to make points. But at the end of the day, your row, your three rows of up to five cards each. It's possible you'll finish with less than less than fifteen cards. And my experience in three games, pretty much had right at fifteen cards each time. Um, one time I really wanted to play a 16th card or even a 17th card, but again, it's a strict 15 limit of played cards in your city. Um, so basically most of the cards you play, like I said, they're either critters or buildings. They're called constructions. They're, most of them are worth points. Um, and if they're not worth points, that must mean they do something else useful. But really this is where the game is because all you do on a turn is you play one worker and just collect the stuff or do whatever it says. Or you play one card into your city and you pay the resources listed on the left side of the card. Or the third and final option, and you only do one on a turn, is you call your workers back. It's called prepare for the next season. What you do is you just call your workers back. You're freeing up those spaces for everyone now, you know, that you were sitting on. Uh, and each season you get a new worker. Uh, in the first season, it's, uh, I guess it's spring, you get one new worker. In the second season, you get one new worker. And then in the final season, you get two new workers. You only start with two at the beginning, no matter the player count. So in the very last, we'll say round of the game, even though there's not really rounds in this game, but in the last round of the game, you're going to have six workers, but you only start with two. Um, so you're going to be calling them back. You know, eventually you're going to have to. I thought the game was broken or I missed something at first because I'm like, you only start with two workers in the first round. You're only going to have three in the second round, and then four, and then finally six. Like, what am I missing? The trick is, 
your workers are really only used to gather resources, you know, cards or other resources. You can always play on your turn without using a worker if you have the resources. So you're going to have quite a few turns where you're not placing a worker. You're just playing a card instead. So that's where I missed and didn't realize that you actually do get quite a few turns in the game. Um, more than I realized. Uh, the trick, there is a little bit of timing involved with when you call your people back. Because, one thing I didn't mention, is in both the spring and the autumn, but not in summer. In the spring and autumn, you get to do a production, which simply means all your cards with a little green production symbol will do whatever they say they do. They do it once when you play them, and they do it twice more during the game. So you really want to get as many of those out as you can before a production, because you're getting free stuff, usually free resources. So you try to get as much done as you can before you go on to the next season, so you can get more with production. But eventually, if you don't have any resources to play cards, and you don't have any more workers left, you've got to call your people back. You don't have a choice. I mean, it's one of those three things every time. That's what you're doing. Um, But that's super simple. Play a worker, play a card, call your people back. That's all you ever do in the game. So why is it, I would say, a light medium game. It's not a lightweight game, not to me. Uh, it's... It's not. It's not as. Uh, it's definitely not as heavy as something like Underwater Cities, which I just mentioned earlier. To me, it's a little heavier than something like Stone Age or Pandemic. You know, not that it has anything to do with Pandemic. I'm just saying, you know, two popular games to compare it to. To me, it's a next step up from like Stone Age, even, but not a big step. I would say it's on the lightest end of medium or the heaviest end of light, if that makes sense. It's definitely not a lightweight game, but it's not like crunchy crunchy either it's just got enough going on and that's because of the cards the cards some of them combo combo off each other just figuring out how you're going to get the resources you need and why this game is a little heavier than what you think it's going to be is i think for one main reason you can always at any time if you take the play a card action if that's what you choose to do on your turn you can always play from your hand, which can have up to eight cards, or from the meadow, which is the face-up cards that everyone sees face up in the middle of the table. And there's always eight cards in the meadow. So that means if you have a full hand of eight cards, and you will pretty often at least have, you know, five, six, seven cards, if you've got a full hand of eight cards, you can choose from 16 cards to play on any given turn. You know, if I've got five cards in my hand, then... There's always eight in the meadow. I've got 13 choices. It's a lot of choices for a card game. I mean, there's not many card games where you have a hand of up to 16 cards at a time. But you regularly, for all intents and purposes, have a hand of 12, 13, 14, 15, 16 cards in this game. Because although you can only hold eight, there's always eight face up. And they're available to everyone. And they're instantly replaced. Um, there's always eight in the meadow. Of course... You just flat out don't have the resources to play some, so that narrows it down some. For example, this card might require two stones and a wood, and you really want it because it's going to really work well with this other card. But you've only got one stone and no wood. You're going to think, oh, how can I get two stones and a wood without taking two whole turns to do it? Because there's no space, at least no basic space, that gives you both stones and wood. So I'm going to have to take one turn to get wood, and I might get more wood than I need, but it's still going to take a turn. Then it's going to take another worker to get a stone. So I'm thinking, oh, what do I need to do? But they're like, wait a minute. In this game, because of the way the random worker spots came out, there is 
a spot where I can trade in cards for resources at a one-to-one rate. So maybe I'll go there. I'll trade in my cards for a wood and a stone, you know, that kind of thing. Uh, so you're just trying to figure out how do I get the resources I need to play the cards I need. And then once you figure that out, well, which cards should I play? I got this farm in my hand and we're about to enter. I'm about to enter production phase. So I'll get a free berry if I play the farm. But all oh, this, I really want to play the king and the king is sitting out there in the meadow. And while somebody else wants to get it, do I really want to wait and risk somebody else getting that? Um, and then you're like, well, what events are available? Oh, I already have the doctor. If I just get the postal pigeon, I can play the flying doctor card, which by the way, I'm making that up. That's not what it's called, but it's something like that. <laughs> like, Oh, should I go for that? And then you're looking around like, well, is anybody else going for that? There is a fair bit to think about, despite the fact that it's the most ridiculously cute game I think I've ever played. There's a fair bit to think about. So the fact that you just have so many choices when you look at your hand and look at the table of what you can play. The other reason, it's a little heavier than what you would think, I think, just from seeing how beautiful and cute it is, is there's no real rounds in this game. And again, I had to read the rule book more than once. It was actually really well written. But I had to read, like, am I missing something here? Like, what do you do in a new round? When does a new round start? And there really are no rounds, and that is kind of unique. Instead, you decide when you call your people back. And so you're entering sort of the next phase of the game. Now, one twist that some people may not like, in my experience of three games so far, it's been perfectly fine. But you could realistically finish your game before somebody else. Um, and in, in the last four-player game we played, there was one player, uh, my brother-in-law, Kurt. Oh, by the way, congratulations, Kurt and Kelby. Um Kelby will probably be mad I'm recording this episode because I have a feeling she would have wanted to to do this one, but it's been three months. i got to get an episode out. Please just forgive me. But Kurt had, uh, I would say, a good two or three turns after us, but it wasn't less like a minute. You know, it's not long. But that can happen. How does that happen? Well, if someone's playing more aggressively and putting the workers out more quickly... Um, maybe buying more expensive cards that require more resources. Someone else is getting cheaper cards. You could run out of resources and workers and have to call them back sooner than someone else. It doesn't mean you're doing worse or doing better. It's just the way it works. But that is an interesting aspect of the game. There's not really rounds. You set your own pace. So it might sound like you're playing your own games and it's just multiplayer solitaire. That's not really the case because you have... A shared tableau of cards, the meadow. Those eight cards, everybody can get. You will have cards taken out from under you. You won't. You need to pay attention if you really want it to try to decide if somebody else might want it. Also, it's a worker placement game. People are going to take spots you won't. Definitely in a four-player game, but even in a two-player game. So there's interaction in both those ways. As far as attacking each other, just playing, you know, the base game, no expansions. I've only noticed one card that in any way attacks another player. It's called the fool. (laughs) He's a skunk and you play him in somebody else's city and he basically takes up a space, which is kind of precious and he's negative two points. It's not devastating, but it's annoying. But then there are cards that actually let you get rid of critters um, or constructions. So if somebody happens to have something like that, it may not even hurt them. But it, it could a little bit, but really that's the meanest you can be in the game, and it's not very mean. 
Um, so yeah, that's basically it. You're putting your workers out to collect stuff, to collect cards, to collect resources. Then you're playing those cards. But the real thinkiness comes in, which cards do I go for? How do I get the resources I need the most efficiently? And uh, yeah, how do I just play my cards so they build off each other? Real quick, there's five types of cards. Basically, there's tan, green, purple, red, and blue. But just to give you an idea, the tan cards represent travelers. They're like wanderers going through your city. They do a thing, and then they don't do anything the rest of the game. Most of them still take a spot in your game, although some of them don't. Some of them specifically say on the card they don't actually take a spot on your city. But they'll do something for you, then they'll go away. Like they might say, draw two cards off the top of the deck. Um play one for a reduced cost, discard the other, something like that. And then they're done. They don't do anything else. They might still be worth a point or two at the end of the game, but they're just instant cards. Pretty basic. The green cards are production. They give you a resource as you play them. And then, like I said, in the spring and autumn, and it's printed right there on the Evertree, which I'll go into the components real quick in a minute. But so if you play early enough, potentially three times, you're going to get something out of the green cards. Maybe more than three times because there are other cards that will actually activate your production cards. So it might say activate one production card in your city. And you're like, ooh, I need, I'm going to activate this one that gives me uh, two logs because I need logs. You know, that kind of thing. The red cards are called destination cards because they are actually new worker placement spots. You can actually have new worker placement spots in your own city. And they tend to be much better than the ones printed on the board. And some of them are open for business, sort of like a hotel. What that means is other people can send their critters to your card and use it as if it were their own. And those tend to be very powerful. Very powerful. But you always get a victory point from the supply whenever somebody does that. So you actually kind of hope people do it. Because one point in this game is nothing to sneeze at. This is a game where you're making 50 to 60 points, give or take a few. So one point is not completely negligible. But also, they're probably using a spot you plan to use when they come to your city to do that. But that's only the ones that say open um, on them that somebody else can go to. You got blue governance cards. Uh, these are the ones that really build off each other and really help you play more. They, they're the ones that give you ongoing benefits. Um, and a lot of these engine building type card games have most of these types of cards. So, for example... The judge, I think, is one of the blue governance cards, which makes sense. He's a cute turtle. <laughs> He's a judge. And honestly, I don't have it in front of me. Um, but he might do something like, you know, here's one right here. If I could read it, the innkeeper. He's a blue card. When playing a critter, you may discard the innkeeper to pay three less resources for that critter. So the innkeeper can actually be discarded to help you pay for another card. Um... The judge might say, whenever you play a critter, draw two cards. Something like that. They're actually usually, they're a little more thematic than that usually, which I appreciate. Um, there's a crane. It's a blue card. It's it's one of my favorites. Um, because it hangs out, and then you destroy it, or you get rid of it. It moves on after you build a new construction, but it lets you build a new construction for cheap. Um and it's cheap to get, so it's just it's a way to kind of take a turn to, in the future, build a better card. Uh, there's lots of ones that are like, every time you put a critter in play, get a berry. Every time you do this, get a wood or whatever. Those are what the blue cards do. They're very useful. 
Then the purple cards, I think, are pretty essential to at least have some of those going on to do well at the game. They're like, if you played Seven Wonders, heck, I think they might have been purple in Seven Wonders. I can't remember. They're the cards that are all about victory points. They don't really do anything else. It'll be victory points. And all the cards have a victory point value listed on them from zero to whatever. But the purple ones have a basic value and then the purple ability, the prosperity ability. So it might be like, if you have the king at the end of the game, every unique critter is worth a bonus point. Or you might have the castle. Every common construction card you have is a bonus point. It's that kind of thing. Um, there's some... Leftover resources are worthless at the end of the game. It might break ties. It's, it's pretty much worthless, though. But there's one card I had that let me turn resin and wood into victory points at the end. So I'm like collecting all kinds of wet resin and wood, even though I didn't plan to use it for extra victory points. Things like that. That's the purple cards. They're all about victory points. I don't think any of them do anything for you during the game specifically. So that's the game. The game ends when everybody's out of things to do, frankly. <laughs> like I said, it's not any set number of turns. Uh, some people might go a little longer than you. Doesn't mean you did bad, but when everybody's out of things to do and that, uh, you know, you will go through this three times, um, or you'll you'll call back your people three times. In other words, you can kind of look at it, I guess, as four rounds because you place those two initial workers and playing cards, then you pull back people in spring, pull them back in summer, pull them back in autumn. So you could kind of look at it as four rounds, but again, everybody's kind of just doing this, um, and might enter the quote unquote next season before you do. But in that final season, when everybody's called all their people back, they've placed all their workers, they have no more resources left to play any more cards, or they've hit the 15 limit in their city and they can't play any more cards, then everybody's done. Once you make sure there's nothing else you can do, you pass, and then you're done. You can't enter again once you've passed. Um, It works that same way. Um, Well, no, it it doesn't work that same way. I was going to say something stupid. Never mind. There is no passing during the rest of the game because you just go into the next season. You just keep on going, keep on going. Only in the last round, when there's nothing left to do, when you pass, you can't come back in the game. That's it. But at that point, either your city's totally full or you're just out of stuff. So there's just nothing else you can do anyways. And you add up your points. And most of the points are going to be right there in your city. You're going to add up the basic points printed on the card. Then you're going to add the bonus points from the purple cards. Uh, You might collect certain just point tokens during the game. You'll add those up. And then the events. Like I said, the events are like, if you have certain cards, you can claim this event. Um, You'll add all that up. And, of course, the winner is the one with the most points. And I think the first tiebreaker is most events completed, um, if you care. Whew. All right. That is how you play Everdale. Let's talk about the... Art and the components. So, the game's beautiful. It's gorgeous. It is as beautiful as everybody says. Again, I have the most basic retail version of the game. Uh, The art is stunning. If that were the only component in the game that was beautiful, it would still be amazing. The art is simply stunning. 
It's beautiful, beautiful, beautiful. Uh, the the cards we noticed things our third time playing. We noticed things we never noticed before. For example, and I didn't even mention this, but the art actually helps with the gameplay. There's construction cards and critter cards. You always have to pay the resources to play the construction cards. This is borrowed from Seven Wonders. Um, if you have certain construction cards in play, you can play the critters, certain critters for free, for a judge for free. If you built the inn, you can play the innkeeper for free. And just like Seven Wonders, it lists that in the top left corner. Um, in the top left corner of the judge, for example, who's a critter, it'll say uh, inn. And that means if you play the inn, then you can just play the card for free as your turn. Which is awesome when you can do that. So there's another strategy. Like, maybe you can afford to play the innkeeper, but like, uh, I'm just going to wait until I can play an inn first because then I'll have to pay for it. But right there on the inn itself, on the inn card, there's a picture of the innkeeper and he's just there doing his business, you know. He's part of the art. If you look at the courthouse, there's the judge sitting in the courthouse. Um, If you look at the mines, I think the mines, you'll see a picture of the miner mole there working. Because these are all car critters who can be played for free. I mean, it's also written out on the card, but I just love that they included that in the artwork. Truly, no exaggeration, some of the most wonderful artwork I've ever seen in a game. The cards are the star of the show as far as that goes, but also the board is just very lush, very pretty. I love that the board is not just a rectangle. It is, it's an odd shape, sort of an oval, but it's got like indentions here and there. Super high quality board. The cards are high quality. Um, then there's the pieces, the wooden animals, the wooden animal meeples. Like you said, you got squirrel and turtle, hedgehog, mouse. In the basic game, that's the four you have because it's a one to four player game. Very, very charming. The resources themselves, the wood, are very nice looking. The resin are like orange clumps of, they look like gems, sort of, you know, like clumps of plastic i guess the pebbles i just love them they're just little smooth round pebbles the berries love those little smushy berries um you place those on the board and they kind of have spots and that reminded me of uh stone age like you put the wood and it's kind of like in a dammed up area of the river like the wood's just collecting you know at the riverbank you know you put the stone on like a mine area the berries have an actual tree like a berry tree you put them onto that's just great the, the board has room for the meadow cards. It actually says the meadow right on it. Um, then you have the ever tree, which is an actual 3D cardboard tree. And I would say it's right at a foot tall, 10 or 11 inches probably. Um, you assemble it and put it there. To be honest with you, if it bugs you. And, okay, so in a two-player game, I see no reason not to use it. In a four-player game... This game takes up a fair bit of table space. To say it's, it's actually a bit of a table hog. Because every player needs to have room to play 15 cards. The board is not small. And then you got this tree, which doesn't really take up more space because it's vertical and it sits on the board itself. But, like, me and Kurt were playing... Because I was trying to be nice to the girls, to be honest with you. We were playing sort of sitting slightly to the left of the board. Meaning the tree... It's kind of like right there in our field of vision. To me, it's not a big deal at all. You just tilt your head and look. There's, it's kind of blocking a couple of things, to be honest, underneath its branches. But you can just tilt your head and look. Okay, for me, it's not annoying enough 
to not be worth it because I just think the thing is cool. In fact, because I'm a sucker. Okay, here's a weird pet peeve of mine. I kind of have a problem with 3D components being made of cardboard. I don't have a problem with 3D components, and I certainly don't have a problem with cardboard, hence the name of the show, Cardboard Cave. But I kind of have a problem with big 3D pieces being made of cardboard. That said, this tree is surprisingly sturdy. It's good. But I, like a sucker, went on Amazon and bought a wooden Evertree. It looks, it actually looks better. The colors are even sharper on it, more vibrant. And it's wooden. I mean, it's thin wood, but it's plenty good enough. It's sturdy. Frankly, I'm just going to leave it built because it looks that good. You know, in most games that would bug me to have a game component that I don't even put in the box. But this thing looks good enough. I'm going to have my wooden Evertree just sitting on top of one of the board game shelves. And whenever I pull out Everdale, I'm just going to pull it down. Um, I mean, it can be disassembled. Honestly, this is my one niggle about the components. I don't feel like the Evertree would stand up all that well to be being disassembled and reassembled, disassembled, reassembled. I've heard some people say they've, which blows my mind, people say they played this game like 3,000 times and they disassemble the Evertree every time and it still looks great. I have serious doubts about that, but they have no reason to lie about it. Um, But for me, I feel like I wasn't too great at putting it together and I already frayed it a little bit on the edges. Like the cardboard was actually peeling away and it might just be bad luck, but eh. 3D cardboard components, I'm kind of iffy about anyways. Although this one was surprisingly sturdy, and I did not need to waste my money on the wooden tree, but that is the one thing I upgraded right away as soon as I played the game and it was fun. Um, but anyways, frankly, you don't even have to use the tree. All the tree does is holds the four special event cards, and then it holds the workers for the next season. Easily could just place those at the edge of the board. Completely unnecessary component. But hey, at the same time, it technically does save a little bit of table space <laughs> because it's holding four cards that everybody needs to be able to see and it's holding all your workers for the next rounds and it's holding holding them above the board instead of outside of the board. So technically it saves a little bit of space, table space, uh, by taking up vertical space. Whatever. I like it. Some people play without it. I could see either way. In a two-player game, it doesn't hurt at all. In a four-player game... Some people might be annoyed that they have to look around the tree to see some of the cards. You know, I could see that. Okay. Um, but as a whole, no, I mean, it's stunning. It's a stunning looking game. It retails for 60 bucks. Um, that's what it cost at Barnes Noble. I had a wonderful 20% off coupon, which is why I got it. Um, and it has at least that many, the quality, quantity, and beauty of the components easily justifies that price. Easily justifies it. Um, the gameplay, I mean, I think it's already obvious. I was kind of a little bit blown away. It's, this thing is not just skin deep. It is a fun, challenging, at certain times, borderline crunchy. Not. It reminded me of the kind of thinking the Underwater Cities requires. It is not as heavy as Underwater Cities, but it's not as far off as what I thought it would be. It's not as heavy. There's not as much going on. It doesn't have the whole building component, you know, we're building tunnels and all that of underwater cities. But the card play itself is a little thinky. And I really, really enjoy it. Um, I believe my wife really enjoys it. She uh she enjoyed it even the first game, but I think she's enjoyed it more each game we've played. And I have too, to be honest. Uh the first game we played 
honestly, it was just luck who was going to win because neither one of us knew the strategies. And I just happened to come across some good card combos, and so I won. But after that, you kind of learn what's in the game, and it just gets better and better. Um, definitely looking forward to playing more. I believe I'll speak for Kurt and Kelby because they both said they really enjoyed the game. Uh, so I'm not putting words in their mouth there. So four for four of the people I played it with have enjoyed it. Um, I can't separate how beautiful it is and how charming it is from how highly I would rate it. But I will say it's a legit, solid, solid game. Apart from how beautiful it is. But the theme really works. It really makes some sense that you're gathering these resources to build these things. It makes sense that you can play these cards if you have other cards because... Of course, the innkeeper would want to work at the inn, so he's going to come to your city if you have an inn. So that's why you get to play him for free, you know, that kind of thing. Um, the doctor turns berries into victory points, and that makes sense because it shows him using the berries to make medicine. Um, that kind of thing. The theme is so strong, considering it's such a just, you know, charming, whimsical thing. This is the kind of game that if people see it set up on the table, they can't help but look and say, what is that? My wife, after she played the game three times last night, was coming down the steps, back down to the basement, and just, you know, kind of had a bird's eye view of this game set up and all of our cards played out. And she's like, man, this game looks really good when you just come in and see it like this. Um, she took a, she had to take a picture of it, even. So, that being said, if this game were very average looking and the theme were very average and mundane, I still think it would be in the seven and a half to eight range for me. Like I'm talking if it was just dog, maybe not ugly, but mundane, boring thing, boring, dry looking art. If it was all that, I mean, it's hard to say because I can't separate how good it looks, but I still think it's a rock solid game. But then I am going to add in an extra point, point and a half for how beautiful it is. I'm, I would give this game a nine out of 10. Let me put it this way. Wingspan is sort of the one of the darlings of the board game world right now. And I'm not going to hate on it just because everybody else loves it because that's become the popular thing to do, and that's not cool. Wingspan is a gorgeous game as well. I think I might like the way this game looks even more, but part of that is because I just love boards, and this game, the board is very important, I think more so than Wingspan. Um, they both have gorgeous artwork. I think I might prefer this even more graphically, and I definitely think I prefer it more as far as the gameplay. I think Wingspan, I'm one of those people who is not bowled over by Wingspan, except for how beautiful it is. But I'm also not one of those that hates on it. I think Wingspan was rock solid. Really, really is. I like the way this one plays more. I feel like this is a substantially deeper game. And I could be totally off base. I've only played it three times. I've only played Wingspan probably half a dozen times. I think Everdale has more going on, which isn't necessarily good or bad. It just depends what you're looking for. I find it more satisfying. Let me just put it that way. I find it more satisfying. My wife commented, wow, this is really a game where we're all just a bad thing. It's just an observation. And she's right. You spend a lot of time looking at anybody else. In fact, when somebody tries to talk to you, you're like, just hold on a second. I'm trying to work this out. If that doesn't sound appealing to you, this game has... But, but, because when you're looking down at your cards, because when you're studying the board, you're looking at such pretty, charming things that has such a good theme, I think it makes it feel better. Like it makes it maybe feel less heavy. <laughs> it's a, it's a fun thinking. It's never a bad thinking. Um, you know, underwater cities and those final turns when things can really be cranking, it might be borderline like 
analysis paralysis for some people. I think this one falls just shy of that, but it's surprisingly thinky. That being said, I would not want to play this with, say, three other people that have analysis paralysis and take really long turns. But I think most turns zip by pretty good. And you know what? You know what it is? I don't, I don't think it's even that the turns are super quick because some people really spend some time thinking about their turns. I think the reason it works is you're always reassessing your own city, your own layout, and thinking, what do I need to do next? What should I do? And even if the card you wanted gets taken... I'm always thinking about what I can be doing, what I can be working on, so I don't really notice that other people are taking a long time on their turns. In fact, all of us were like, oh, is it my turn again? Oh, is it my turn already? We were doing that a lot last night because we're just so involved in our own little layouts. So I'm giving Everdale a 9 out of 10, every bit of a 9 out of 10. That could change with more plays. I've enjoyed it more each time I played it, so I think at least for a while... If anything, that nine would raise up even higher. I like it that much. And part of that is how beautiful it is. And I don't care if that's shallow. I love board games partly because they're a visual tactile medium. Tactile medium. And Everdell is a great one. Um, the box has 40, 40 to 80 minutes. I think with four players, it's going to be a two-hour game the first time you play. But it's a, it's a lovely two hours, so I wouldn't be scared away by that. I think 90 minutes is probably a four-player game, realistically. Um, I think an hour for a two-player game is very reasonable. I would say an hour to 90 minutes. I've not tried the solo. It says 40 minutes for solo, I guess. That's probably right, but I've not tried it. It it does have its own solo mode. It's not just the basic game. It's got some differences. Um, But this game's so beautiful, I kind of want to share it with other people. I don't know that I'll play it solo, but I might. Um, Yeah, so, wow. I don't want to spend much time on the next part because because it's already gone a little long. So Everdale just you know went to Barnes and Noble, had some birthday money. It was my birthday recently. Had this twenty percent coupon that was going to expire the next day. I know I don't need any new board games. Lord knows I don't need any need any new board games. But I decided I was going to get a board game because thankfully our local Barnes good Lord I can't talk our Barnes and Noble has some legit good board games. And leaving with Everdale was one of the happiest accidents I've had in a while. Because I love the game. I love looking at it. I love playing it. Um, And if it had just stopped there, I would have nothing but positive things to say about Everdale and everything related to Everdale. I chose, and I'll, I'll just flat out admit it, I chose to spend $30 on that wooden tree, which is probably way too much, but it's a it's a wooden piece that's I believe hand painted or at least quality painted, whether it's hand painted or not. And I like it. So get off my back. And if you're listening, honey, I'm sorry, but I've sold a bunch of stuff on eBay lately. I justify stupid things when I when I sell other things. That's what I do. I've sold some Lego sets lately, so I've justified buying some board games. I fuel my addictions with my other addictions. So that's healthy, right? But other than that, and that was totally unnecessary, the cardboard tree was more than fine. Technically, you don't only have to use a tree at all, but it's pretty, so come on. But if that's as far as it went, I would have zero negative at all about Everdale. And I still have zero negative to say about it. But because I have a somewhat addictive personality type, because I get obsessed about things... I get special interest, you might say, even. 
I started obsessing about, okay, I, I got to look into all the expansions. Um, I've already ordered from my Etsy seller some unofficial upgrades that were a lot of money, but they're handcrafted. They're, well, they're 3D printed. They're hand designed, I guess I should say. <laughs> they're original pieces of work that are not official. Um, and, and I've kind of got to the point where I almost would prefer to, to really upgrade a game I love instead of getting a bunch of new games. I used to kind of think that was a waste of money, but I, I don't know. I kind of got to that point. Like, I have Underwater Cities blinged out to the max. I spent more money on that game than really you should on a single board game. But I love it. I love the way it looks now. Um, it doesn't play any better than it used to, but it's so cool. <laughs> and I've kind of done the same thing with Everdale. I bought some pieces, like um, the cards that uh, that other people can visit. I bought little 3D printed open signs, like, hey, you can visit this card. That's actually useful. That's something they probably could have included in the game. So you don't have to really study other people's cards. You can just look across the table and see, they, hey, they have a card I can play on. But totally unnecessary. Totally unnecessary stuff. It's a gorgeous game. It looks like a deluxe game out of the box. It really does. So all that that was cool. Like, yes, yeah, I was, I was happy to buy that stuff because I just enjoy the game that much. But then, of course, the next thing, I'm like, well, you know what? I like this game. I might as well go ahead and look at some of the expansions. Not that I need them yet. I think this game has tons of plays left in it before I'm even remotely bored. But I might as well look at the expansions before they go out of print, before they become hard to find, blah, 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 fear of missing out, all that garbage. And I wish I'd never done it. <laughs> I wish I'd never done that, because this is my second part of the episode. I flippin' hate Kickstarter exclusive stuff that truly affects gameplay. Or more specifically, what I hate is buying something, for example, an expansion to a board game, and then realizing, wait a minute, this had half the crap stripped out of it. I'm talking gameplay elements stripped out of it so they could have a deluxe Kickstarter version, which I didn't even know about when they were doing the Kickstarter. I missed out on the most recent Kickstarter by mere months, but I didn't know about it when it was running. So, okay, not only is there a deluxe edition of the base game, which I missed out on because I didn't get the Kickstarter, but, let me go and tell you, do not hesitate to run to your local game store or online or whatever you want to do and pick up a regular retail copy of Everdale because the stuff in the collector's edition is, there's metal coins. That's the only thing I'm missing at all. The rest of the stuff is just kind of inconsequential to me. Um, the metal coins will be cool, but I really have no problem. They're just victory point tokens. It's really fine. You're not even paying for stuff with them. Like, they're not money. They're just victory point tokens. They're perfectly fine. High-quality cardboard in the base game. No problem. You know, your mileage might vary, but I'd really... I don't regret not having the collector's edition. And that's fine. See, that's the kind of thing I'm fine with. If they want to have a Kickstarter and encourage people to back their Kickstarter, you know, include metal coins. Include, maybe, um, uh, stickers to go on the meeples. Include, heck, like the 3D tree. The, the wooden tree, you know, make that a Kickstarter thing because it's totally just for looks. But while the base game is just fine for the expansions, there's Pearlbrook, there's, I think it's called Spirecrest, and then Belfair is the most recent one. Now, the most recent one, Belfair, I think there's only one edition of that, so that's no big deal. But the two big expansions, the, the Pearlbrook and Spirecrest, 
two big expansions that add a lot of stuff to the game. Um, not that the game needs it, but because I love the game, of course I'm going to look into it. They strip out cards. Cards that have variety. The definition of an expansion is to expand the gameplay. They removed stuff that expands the gameplay for the retail versions of these expansions. And these are not cheap expansions. I'm talking 40 to $50 a pop. And they removed gameplay. And I'm getting worked up about it. Because I had these... Okay, this company, Starling Games, obviously they know how to produce a gorgeous game. And Mr. James Wilson, I will be looking for future games by you. Good job, sir. And also to say something else good about the designer, he's very active in like message boards and stuff, answering questions. Always appreciate that. The artist, I should have mentioned this earlier, Andrew Bosley. Uh, sir, I would applaud louder, but that would be too loud in the microphone. Amazing work, sir. Uh, wow. And again, and the and the publisher, Starling Games. Good job. I mean, this is a premium product for a very fair price. Even if I paid the full $60 at Barnes & Noble and didn't have a coupon, I'd be like, yeah, I got my money's worth out of this game. I've paid that much for games before that had almost nothing in the box. It's fantastic. The expansions, I feel like they screwed up. And it's nerve-wracking because I had... The Pearlbrook and the Spirecrest expansion on uh, the, unfortunately Barnes and Noble didn't have those, so I had to go to an online game store, had them in my cart, ready to purchase, and I'm so glad I didn't click the button because I just decided I don't know to do a little more looking around, and come to find out, like I said, they stripped so much stuff out of these expansions. Now here's the thing, and to be fair, because I do love the game, it's possible. These expansions still would have included enough that I would have been happy if I didn't know better. But now that I know that I missed out on lots of content that actually affects gameplay for basically the same amount of money that they're charging for the retail copies, oh man, like it just gets to me. Now, okay, for example, the Pearl Brook, Pearl Brook expansion. It includes a board that actually goes, this game already takes a lot of table space. You add any expansion, it's going to be a table hog. But it has like a river area that you attach to the left side of the board. Super cool looking. Um, and also some new wooden creatures. That's always cool. And some car, some, it adds some new gameplay elements. And I'm not, I'm not going to go into that. But the way you really add variety to this game, of course, is going to be in the cards. And it includes new cards. Well, if you get the deluxe edition which was on the Kickstarter. You get the, you know those signs I talked about? It actually has cardboard 3D signs to put on your open spots for other people to see. That's not in the retail version. Okay, I guess. I'll give them a pass on that one, although it's actually kind of a useful gameplay element. The, the Kickstarter version has glass pearls. The retail version has plastic pearls. That is totally fine. That's the kind of thing you should be doing for a Kickstarter. Yes, glass pearls. That is deluxe. That's awesome. But it's not needed. Put plastic ones in the retail edition. Good job. Awesome. Like I said, the 3D signs, I'll give them a pass on because you can live without it. The Kickstarter version has a lot more meeples, the wooden creatures. Again, I don't think they do anything for gameplay except you just have more choices when you play. Hey, do you want to play the lizards? Do you want to play, you know, the the otters? You know, and I think the otters are included in the retail version, but there there's other choices that you get if you get the Kickstarter version. Okay, you know what? I'll even give that a pass. I'm being pretty generous here. 
I'll give that a pass because maybe, you know, for what they're selling it for, they want that to be only in the deluxe Kickstarter edition. Where I got mad is when I realized, and I don't know the numbers, I'm going to make it up a little bit, but it's something like 40% of the cards were stripped out for the retail version. And this is pure gameplay. This is why you buy an expansion. The forest cards, which are the ones that like mix up the worker placement spots that change every game, that's a simple addition I would like to have added to this game. And they stripped out, it went from like, I don't know, 24 to 15 or something like that. Then there's other cards. Again, they stripped out about 40% of them. Oh, okay. I don't want to end it on a negative note, but I was just very frustrated. The Spirecrest expansion is the same deal. They stripped out about 40% of the content content for the retail edition. A lot of it is actually gameplay expanding content. Again, this game's wonderful. If it never had a single expansion, it would be a wonderful game with lots of replay value. There's lots of things that change every game. The nature of a card-based game is going to be different every game. You know, when you add cards, you're adding a luck element, but you're also adding variety, replay value. It's going to have plenty of replay value. There is nothing wrong with the base game that you can go to the store and buy. Please do it. It's so wonderful. But before you buy the expansions, you might want to look at what you're actually getting in the box. Because if you watch video reviews of this game, if you read reviews online, these are all people who got the Kickstarter edition. You know, if it's like the Dice Tower, then they were sent the Kickstarter edition. And honestly, I don't know. I feel like maybe Starling Games could have been a little more open about that. That how much stuff was stripped out of the retail editions. Because I know most of the reviews I watched, they didn't seem to indicate, oh, this is all Kickstarter-only content. Now, you're not going to get this. You're not going to get this. No, I, I did not see that in these reviews. So I don't think it was super obvious even to the reviewers. Like, hey, I feel like the honest thing to do would be to tell the reviewers when you send these copies, like, hey, uh, just so you know, these things right here, Kickstarter-only. I mean, I guess it's on the reviewers. It's not on Starling Games, but... <sighs> I was frustrated. I felt icky about it because these expansions I was about to buy, spend good money on. There's just real content there that I would be missing out on. And uh, I don't know if they were really a reduced price, that would be one thing, but they're really not much difference in price than they were on the Kickstarter with all the content included. I understand rewarding people who back you on Kickstarter. That's the whole point. But it should be like I said. Okay, you get some extra wooden characters that are just for looks, but they sure are cool if you back us on Kickstarter. And heck, the pearls are made of glass. Isn't that cool? But to to strip out cards, basic gameplay, if someone didn't back your Kickstarter, and then release a retail edition of an expansion that's really not what people are probably expecting to get if they know about the game. Ugh. But to be fair, if someone doesn't know anything about Kickstarter, doesn't go to Board Game Geek and obsess, obsess about things like I clearly have, they would probably buy the expansions and have a good experience. Like, eh, you know what? Maybe this is a little expensive for what was actually in the box, but it adds to my game. I'm happy with it. But now that I know, I'm like, oh. That said, um, and I... I I almost hate to encourage it, but it does look like the Kickstarter page is still open for late pledges. Unfortunately for me, the best value is just buy everything at once. But I didn't know I wanted everything at once. I didn't even know I'd love the game as much as I do. But I already have the game. I already have the wooden tree. Those are both things that are included in the all-in pledge. You know, 
Uh, my head was just spinning in circles. Like, well, what should I do? Should I still buy the all-in pledge? Because it really does save money. Even already having the base game and the wooden tree, it still saves money to buy the all-in pledge compared to buying everything separately. Oh, but... Like, I hate feeling like I'm being punished just because I didn't know about the Kickstarter until it was too late. Um, so, <laughs> my suggestion to you is to just buy the game at your friendly local retailer. Don't worry about the collector's edition of the main game because I don't think it's really worth the extra money. At least not what it costs now since you'd have to pay extra for it. I think the regular version of the game looks like a collector's edition already and it's wonderful. If you decide you want to get the expansions which are not necessary, but just add brand new gameplay to it, um, then look into it and see what makes the most sense to you. Do you want to spring the extra money to find the collector's editions? Or just be happy with the stripped-down regular editions? I'm sad that I had to muddy this review with all that, but that was my experience today as someone who's absolutely kind of fallen in love with Everdale a little bit to realize how stinking complicated the Kickstarter crap is. Oh, come on. So that's my rant. <laughs> Kickstarters, please. Yes, draw people in with deluxe components, with flashy things. That wooden tree, you think that wouldn't pull people in? Yeah, that's going to pull people in. All these extra cute animal meeples? Yeah, that's going to pull people in. Entice people with that. I mean, that is what it is, you know? You know, you draw people in with that. But don't strip out expanding gameplay content for people who buy your game and support you at their friendly local retailers. I mean, the copy of Everdale people buy at the store is awesome, but the expansions people pick up at their stores are less so because you strip so much out of them. So, it's frustrating, but I'm just going to love Everdale for what it is, and honestly, I'm probably going to swallow my pride, and I'm probably going to buy the collector's edition expansions, even though I could just rebuy the whole package, the whole kit and caboodle in a big box <laughs> on their pay, their Kickstarter page and actually save money. But I just refuse to do it because I already have the game. You know, I, I just refuse to do that. <sighs> but I'm probably still going to buy the full collector's edition expansions because I do enjoy the game that much. And hey, at the end of the day, uh, Kickstarter can just really take the fun out of things for me. Things just get too complicated. I just wanted to pick up the expansions and found out last minute that they were stripped down versions of the expansions. But the good news is, I believe Everdale is a very complete game. I believe people who love Everdale say that. It's a complete game. It never needed an expansion. The expansions are more like sequels almost to this game. Like they're not really meant to, for the most part, they don't really just spice up what's there. They add a whole new element. Like today, if you want to play with the Pearlbrook part, then you add it in. But you might not even play with it every time you play. That's kind of how these expansions were designed. So it's a little more forgivable for that reason. That this isn't a game that even needed the expansions. It's not a game that was lacking in any way. These expansions are something extra already. So I guess maybe I should be a little more forgiving and be like, you know what? It's a beautiful, complete game. The expansions are just extra already so hey if people go and buy the retail version of the expansions don't know what they're missing they'll probably be okay um <laughs> but consider yourself warned okay I'm, I'm done blabbing i'm sorry i'm sorry to end on a negative note but i'm hey i'm gonna say go 
run, don't walk to your local computer. <laughs> Realistically, that's where most of you are buying these games. And order Everdale. Um, or go tell Barnes & Noble if yours sells this game. Like, hey, Barnes & Noble, I appreciate it when you actually stock good games. I want to buy this. And uh, my nearest legit local game store is like an hour away. So that's why I bought it at Barnes & Noble. Just FYI. I wish I had an actual friendly local game store in town, but I don't. I have to go several towns over. But, Everdale, 9 out of 10 for me, and that's just the base retail game, nothing added on. It gets a 9 out of 10. All those expensive upgrades added, I don't even have them yet. They're on their way from Spain. (laughs) So, this is just for the game itself that you pick up at your local retailer, 9 out of 10. Beautiful, gorgeous, charming, and way more satisfying as a game than you would ever think just from looking at it. Highly recommended. Thank you for listening. Sorry this was a long one. Catch you next time in the cave.